feels like I'm ready to do yoga. <laughs> I don't do yoga. Um, I'm super glad to be here. Thank you guys uh, so much uh, for having us. We're squatting at Jonathan's apartment, and it's pretty awesome. Um, we're honorary Brooklynites. We went to Trader Joe's. It's crazy in there. In Ohio, you go to Trader Joe's, and you get food, and then you go pay for it. You go through customs here. It's crazy. Uh, how many of you are from Ohio, Kentucky, Nevada, or California? All right, me too. Kentucky? And, and you say it loud and proud. Way to go. I'm from all four of those places. When people ask me where I'm from, I, never, I usually pick the one that sounds the most interesting in the moment, but it's rarely Kentucky. <laughs> I was born there. And uh, then I, uh, when I was 12, 13, we moved to Columbus, Ohio. And OH. <laughs> Welcome to church. Went to uh, Cincinnati to college and then uh, went to Vegas, lived in Vegas for 10 years because I wanted to get the heck out of Ohio. Some of you did that same journey, but you went east, I went west. Um, how many native New Yorkers here? How you doing? Good to see you guys. Um, so about maybe half. That's the way Vegas was too. Nobody's really from Vegas. Everybody's went there. And uh, so you kind of build a community. I went there to plant a church, went to seminary, and then did all that stuff and started church. And uh, quit doing the church thing. I just realized I liked uh, teaching. I liked speaking. And I liked helping people as a general idea. <laughs> but actually helping people is super hard. And uh, for fun, I've always been a bit of a performer, so I was studying with the Second City Improv Troupe and then uh, started doing that professionally. So I had a really weird transition, literally went from church to working at a comedy show on the Strip for three years and did that deal, then went to L.A. and did the whole acting deal for a while. And uh, that's a way of saying I did not make it. <laughs> Some of you may be in the same place right now. Um, and... Then uh, went back to church work in Cincinnati, so kind of full circle seven years ago. Took a job at a big church doing the whole speaking thing uh, half the weekends of the year, and, and it was good for me. I liked it. Um, it was good for my family, and we got to move back home and kind of raise the kids in Ohio. And about five years into that, I remembered why I quit church the first time, though. Um, I've got a five-year window for church work, and, uh, and decided to go ahead and, and launch my own business at that point. Um, and went back to production. Uh, so we do, uh, we do some movies and, and starting to do some TV stuff. Um, pay a lot of the bills doing corporate video kind of stuff. So it's, it's a gig. It's a job. We do live events now. We're starting to do some shows. Um, so that just, just lets you know that's, that's my story as quickly as I could tell it to you, um, leading out the most important part, which is her over there. Uh, what's your name? I'm sorry. This is Debbie. Uh, or <laughs> Debbie, my kids. And uh, they're 15 and almost 13. And uh, they're loving Brooklyn, especially the body-painted women at Times Square. They're from, <laughs> they're from Vegas. They were born there. It's cool. Uh, <laughs> the guys back there are like, he said none of this the first time. Where is this going? We're going to talk about salvation today uh, and what it means that Jesus saves. In my part of the world, you have graffiti here. You have Banksy. We have religious fanatics that put Jesus saves on everything in Ohio. 
And so uh, the idea of even saying the words Jesus saves, even at church as a recovering pastor, feels religious and weird. And the reality is it probably is the, uh, the most central thing I could say about my understanding of what Jesus does. He saves us. But when I was growing up at a very fundamentalist church, which was a great place because it taught me about God and taught me about community and helped me figure out some things I wanted to do with my life, uh, the bad part was it was fundamentalist and, um, you know, super hyper-conservative. And what they believed about salvation and what they taught every week about salvation was uh, pretty narrow and simple in some ways. And maybe you grew up in a place like this, maybe you didn't. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a different religion that was similar to the kind of fundamentalist thinking. But I was taught that you are saved. I was taught you get saved and you gotta get saved. And when you get saved, how you do it is you say the right words. Something like, I believe Jesus is Christ, Lord of my life, something like that. Those are the, they, they become kind of magic words that you wait for people to say, and then when, we, when they say them, they're saved. And then you have to do some sort of religious rite. It's a little different for everyone else. We baptize, we baptize by immersion. So once you said Jesus is Lord, and you got all the way wet and came all the way up, thank God you were saved. I did that when I was eight years old, and then I realized, as best I could tell, now we just wait to die <laughs> so we can be saved in heaven. And... Salvation was very much about not going to a literal hell and making sure you made it to the literal heaven. And uh, it really did feel like, and as, I remember thinking as an eight-year-old, what do I do like for the next a lot of years? <laughs> like, what? Uh, uh, okay, like I figured it out really early, so what's next? And salvation had very little to do with your day-to-day life, and as a result, Religion became a separate thing that you did on Sundays while you waited to die, and then you lived the rest of your life the other six days of the week. Um, And so when I started to grow up, I realized that though I was saved by that definition, and I still believe in that in in many ways. I'm not not saying I don't believe in afterlife or anything like that, but when when that's all it meant, I realized growing up that I went through a lot of pain and frustration and confusion, and that was just like middle school, right? And then you go through high school and college and, and young adult life, and I just realized I don't feel saved. I don't feel safe. <laughs> I don't feel rescued. And I just feel like lost a lot. And that was language we used back at my church too. If you aren't saved, you're lost, which is really sort of offensive when you tell people that the first time. Oh, you're lost. Well, I'm nowhere. I'm right here. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but then you get at a point in your life where you can use that language, and you, you really do find yourself saying metaphorically to people, I just feel lost. I don't know where home is. I just feel isolated, lonely, empty, scared. I started to feel like that. I realized maybe there's something wrong with my faith if it doesn't have answers for that. Or maybe it's incomplete. And so when I read the psalm that uh, they asked me to speak about, um, Jonathan asked them to get out of town. Uh, it's weird when you're the guest speaker somewhere, they often assign you things, and then they leave. So the truth is, you can talk about whatever you want. <laughs> but to honor him, I will read three verses of it and then talk about what I want. <laughs> That's only partially true, because... Uh, Reading this psalm over and over is what prompted me to want to talk about salvation because it ends like this. 
Oh, before we start reading, there's a lot of masculine pronouns in here. This is back in the day. So if you're a woman, receive it as um, you know, she. But it's talking about, in the original context, I think talking about a king and that God will be with this king to lead the nation. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we, we look at these psalms through history, through a rearview mirror, through the life of Jesus, and we see that he offers us some of these same things. That makes sense. So this is what it says. Because he or she loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. I will call, he will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble, and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him, and here's the last phrase, and show him my salvation. So this whole psalm is really about being saved. Uh, you know, a lot of those earlier phrases uh, that Jen read were poetic, and if you're into that, it's cool, right? Like, but for some people, aren't. So like, I don't, I don't know what a blessed tent is. And I don't worry about pestilence and plague a lot, quite honestly. <laughs> and so that's why these psalms can feel dated and uh, sometimes irrelevant. But you just have to use a little creative imagination that you lived back then, and the words would be different today, but it'd be the same idea that when we are scared, when we think we're going to die, when we feel lonely, that he saves us. And we think about what that means. I think salvation is holistic that it's all-encompassing, or it's not really salvation. Uh, Like if you were being attacked by sharks and a bear, (laughs) and I saved you from the bear, it's not really salvation. (laughs) Uh, You will be the only people ever use that analogy with, so take it as your own. Uh, We've got some shark issues we've got to deal with. So when we talk about salvation, and it's just about getting you to heaven... That's a great thing to hold on to and honestly to spend the rest of your life really trying to think about, meditate on what that might mean. But that's not, a, that's not it. That's not enough. When you're in hell now, you feel like this is hell and you need heaven. You, you need saved right now. I think Jesus did this in his life here. Four biographies of Jesus, right? The Gospels and the New Testament. There were some more that thought to be, and these made the cut. These were the four we think are the most historically accurate. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are conveniently not in the order they were written. It's as if people wanted the Bible to be hard. (laughs) Which one's first? Mark, put it second. (laughs) Right. Mark was the first one written, best we can tell. We, this is, none of this is on videotape, but by studying this stuff, seems like Mark was the first one written. It's the Cliff's Notes. It's the shortest. It's like someone said, quick, Mark, write this in an hour, like the delegated term papers due tomorrow. And he just gets the story out, real fast, and leaves out a lot of the cool details. And so Matthew and Luke pick it up 10, 20 years later, and they use Mark like they're copying off of it, like another paper, but they use other sources. So Matthew's much longer, and it largely is about the Jews and Luke is longer in a different slant. And then John writes later, and it's a lot of new stuff. Um, but in Mark, you know, when he, when he goes to tell the story of Jesus, he, uh, he says several stories early on in chapter one. He didn't know it was chapter one when he wrote it. But early on, he tells some significant stories of Jesus to set the tone for who he believes Jesus is and how he wants people to receive this message of this rabbi. And one of the earliest stories is Jesus healing a leper. 
which is a person with a skin disease. And so, you know, we have to travel back in time to understand what's going on so that we can relate it to the current, the future. And in this culture, in the ancient world, uh, skin disease was a big deal because it could be contagious and you could wipe out the whole village. So when you found a blemish, you were supposed to go to the priest and it was the job of the priest to be like, mm, acne, you're good. Or, Ew. when you get this, uh, your life is over. Seriously. Like, you, it's over. You gotta leave. You gotta go out of town. And, uh, this would happen to men, women, and children. It was a terrifying thing to go to the priest to have a blemish or rash looked at. There were specific instructions in the Torah about how to deal with this. And if you were contagious, you were immediately ostracized. You couldn't go to your family, you couldn't go back to your work, you couldn't go to your synagogue. You just left. So you can imagine in whatever life stage you were in, maybe. Um, unfortunately, I appear to be a little older than most of you. I'm in my very early 40s. <laughs> Almost as early as you can get by a year or two. Um, and uh, my wife is much younger than me, if you count months. Um, and... Uh, we are at a certain life stage, and we have... I won't embarrass him much. Don't look over there. We have two teenage boys, and they're awesome. I love them. They're 15 and 13, and they're pretty good most of the time. He's 12. Do you, wanna, you want the mic? You want to come up? He's almost 13. I'm pre-grieving having two teenagers. He's 12. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a comedy show now. Hecklers. Um, okay, so this is a serious story. No more jokes. Um, so if I were to find out, if I were to go to the priest right now and he would say uh, leprosy, the first thing I'm not going to think actually is this might kill me. I'm not going to really think about my physical problems that I'm bound to have in the years to come. I'm going to think of my family, and I'm going to think of the fact that I can't even go back and say goodbye to them because I'm infected. I will probably never see them again, and I have to leave town. And the next thing I might think of after I get through that is my business and the four people who work for me and how they depend on me and how now I will never go back to work. And then I might think of my religious community and my church and how I will never, ever get to do this again. I'll never get to be a part of a local church again. And I will think about how I will never really see my friends again. I'll never get to go visit my college roommate or go to uh, have a beer with a group of guys that we help each other through life with. That'll never happen again. I just have to leave. And I will go find a colony of people who are more progressed in this disease than I am. And there's a series of diseases that we will spread among each other as we try to basically die with some dignity. In this world, 
that sort of uh, pronouncement on you is devastating. The last thing you will think of is, oh, this is going to be painful physically. Now, sometimes people would just get better, and they were allowed to come see the priest, and he would look at them again, and he would say, you're well, but that, that didn't happen a lot. And uh, you went out, and you became a part of this colony on the fringe. Well, Mark chapter 1, he's telling the story of this rabbi, Jesus, and he, ha- he says that a leper, even though he's not supposed to, comes into town because he's heard of Jesus, and he falls on his knees in front of Jesus. And he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says, Jesus looked at him, and he's filled with the actual word is splogna, which is a great word. Um, it's actually where we get the word spleen. Um, because splogna is this feeling. <clears throat> that would be a better translation. And Jesus felt, because <clears throat> sometimes splogna means uh, rage. But oftentimes it means deep pity and compassion. You know that feeling, right? Right here. In your gut. Not, yeah. Jesus feels that. Actually, every time he feels this in the Gospels, he immediately takes action, and it's almost always physical. He feels this for the first time in Mark, and he, uh, he grabs the guy's face, he grabs him, and he says, You're healed. Grabbing his face, this man hasn't been touched for years. And for the first human contact he has is this stranger teacher who he believes can save him, and he saves him. He heals him. And the man is physically made well, depending on how progressed his disease was. You know, maybe he hadn't had uh, feeling, in num- he has numbness in his fingers and toes for years, and suddenly he can feel them again, and they're tingly, and he's, the sores going away. And the first thing he thinks is not, thank God the sores went away. He thinks my family. And he runs home. And if it's been 10 years, he sees his 25-year-old and his 23-year-old sons. And he finds his wife. And he finds the people he worked with to see if he can get back in the economy. And that Saturday, he gets to go to synagogue and he gets to be with God and his community, and he is totally saved. He's healed across the board. And I think what Mark is saying is this rabbi who has come can do this with one touch. He brings salvation with him. Everywhere he goes, people are being saved because he brings God with him. In the book of Luke... Uh, it's interesting. Luke is, Luke is much more concerned, actually, with uh, the socioeconomics of Jesus than the other Gospels. And, uh, for instance, in Matthew, you know the Sermon on the Mount? Heard of this? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Gold star. Good job. This is in Matthew. Matthew is very concerned with spiritual things. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they w- theirs is the kingdom of God, Matthew says. I don't think, for the, this is a side note, do with it what you will, I don't think these Beatitudes, blessed are the blanks because blank, I don't think that they are telling us to try to be these things. I don't think Matthew's saying go try to be poor in spirit so that you can receive the kingdom of God. Some people think that's what it means, and what they say it means then is try to be humble. That's fine. I just think those people are wrong. This is what I think it means. I think this was a way of, uh, this was a way of speaking and sort of, uh, almost sort of, ancient tweets that were like 
outside of the Beatitudes as well, just philosophers would say this stuff. And the formula is always, because this has happened, then blessed are these people. Jesus just reverses it and says it the other way, but I think what this means is because the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's different than saying be poor in spirit so you can get the kingdom. The kingdom of God is the presence and the reign of God. And Jesus says, blessed, the poor in spirit, I think, are the spiritually bankrupt. Those of you who are really bad at being spiritual, like you're just not good at it. You don't even know why you're here. You don't have the songs. Why are we singing songs? Prayer, Bible study, blah, blah, blah. Like, you're just not good at it. Lucky are you. Blessed are you because the kingdom of God has come to overpower you and you'll figure it out. So that's Matthew. You know, now Luke says, blessed are the poor. That's it. He leaves off the in spirit. Little edit. Jesus probably said both things. But Luke says, blessed are the poor. Not poor in spirit. What he means by that, the poor, are the people that don't have money. The people that don't have food. The people who don't have houses. It's what we mean when we usually say the word poor. Blessed are the impoverished. Luke says, because the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is here to take care of you. This was Luke's, uh, you know, his sort of mindset, very centralized on uh, societal issues, on justice, poverty, racism, um, you know, to the, uh, to the classes that were particularly not privileged. In Luke 4, he says, he has Jesus uh, re- read from Isaiah to say the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind because the year of the Lord's favor has finally come. It's gonna help these people that are marginalized. And so this theme will run all throughout Luke's book and in Luke chapter seven, we have this beautiful account of one of these marginalized people interacting with Jesus. And I wanna tell you that story is sort of the foundational story as we try to get our head around all this. Uh, this is a story that takes place at the house of a man named Simon. Simon's a Pharisee. First of all, let me say there's only five proper names in the Bible, which again makes it totally confusing. There's John, Mary, Simon, Judas. Like, this is not Simon Peter. It's not Simon the sorcerer. Did you know that guy was in there? Just go look that one up. Um, this is Simon the Pharisee. So just not a lot of creative names back in the day. So don't get him confused. So now, a Pharisee, there's two things you should know about Pharisees. They were, a religious, they were religious leaders in the Jewish community. They were part of a a, a specific sort of sect of Judaism. But the first thing you should know is that the people looked at the Pharisees as if they were really good people. They were the the good pastors and rabbis and teachers. They were the Billy Graham's, Mother Teresa's, Dalai Lama's. Like they were the Pope Francis. They were the, like if your son decides to grow up and be a Pharisee, you're like, I did pretty good. Like he's a good kid. Like good for him. And the job of the Pharisees was to be as, righteously perfect as they could be in hopes that Messiah would come, in hopes that the kingdom would come when God looks down and see this group of righteous people being righteous. To get God's attention to say, hey, help us out. And so they spent their whole lives being right and being righteous and doing the right things and looking the right way. And they were presented as the model citizens and the perfect ones. And if you can just use a little bit of empathy, then you will realize that's impossible. You can't be that good. You can't be that perfect. But this was not an environment where you were allowed to say, oh, by the way, I did do this sin. 
You had to keep it in. You had to keep, for the sake of the people, you had to present that it was possible to be this righteous. And as a result, these people had an inner life that was a total train wreck because they were spending all their time spinning their image. It's hard to believe that there would be a time in history when we would take our religious leaders and make them icons and then rejoice when they fall, but that's what happened. It still happens. That's what's going on. And so these guys... Um, are perfect, nearly perfect in the eyes of the people. Now, that's the first thing you know. The second thing you should know is that Jesus didn't like them. He loved them in a son of God. You have to love everybody kind of way. But these were his enemies. These were the bad guys. Think about that for just a second if you never have. Jesus' bad guys were the good guys. Jesus' bad guys were not the bad people. Jesus' bad guys initially were not the government, they get there. Initially, the people, he's, his enemies, are the pastors and the priests and the, literally the rabbis. And uh, he would call them terrible things. It's an interesting you know, activity to just try to forget everything you've ever learned and read one of the gospels and ask yourself, is this Jesus, is he a nice guy or not? because we assume Jesus is a nice guy because we've all seen the picture with that lamb around his neck. (laughs) And we all just have this innate feeling that God is nice. And he's the son of God, so I'm sure he's a nice guy. Well, Jesus was beyond nice, perfectly nice to prostitutes and to tax collectors who were like the Sopranos. They were the organized crime. He loved those guys, partied with them all the time. He was nice to the blind and the lame and the impoverished. He was nice largely to all women who most men weren't nice to. He was nice to children. You would let Jesus babysit. (laughs) He was a good guy. He was not nice to the Pharisees. He would call them things like, he would say, you know what you are? You're a beautiful cup laid with silver and golden rubies. And on the inside, instead of wine, you're full of crap. <laughs> that's what you are. It's like, you know what you are? You're, you're a beautiful coffin that's filled, you know, just immaculate on the outside, but on the inside, you're a dead, rotting corpse. That's what you are. Those are two of the seven woes. Again, you can look those up. And I don't say crap just to be funny. He's like, you're full of dung. That's the Bible word for crap. You're full of it. Didn't like these guys. And so there was always this story, especially early on in the Gospels, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to say something dumb to discredit him to the people so they can just say this guy, Nazareth, where he was from, was kind of a hillbilly town anyway. So they're like, this guy's just a crazy hillbilly. Like, just don't listen to him. So they were always trying to ask him trick questions, but Jesus was always turning it on him and making them look dumb, but they kept doing it. And eventually they just decided to kill him. But early on, they're just trying to discredit him. And this particular story, this man, Simon, is, has invited Jesus to his house, it, it seems like, to ask him one of these trick questions or to do something to discredit him, but we never get to the trick question because the awesome story happens first. But Simon, it, it appears, has invited his other Pharisee friends to come have dinner with him. And this may be hard for us to understand at first, but this would have been a social event for the whole town. We think what would happen is the Pharisees would have dinner together. They would probably eat like on an outdoor porch of someone's house and the other townspeople would come and watch the religious guys eat dinner for fun. 
That was their entertainment. Because a, a debate would always you know, spring up and they would fight with each other and it would be fun to watch. So there's no TV or anything else to do. And this was theater, basically. And they would play it up sometimes for the audience. But they'd always eat first and then it would kind of boil up to that. And so the dinner has begun and, and Simon's friends come at 7 o'clock with their little invitation said. Jesus has said 7.30. They get there. When they come in the house, he gives them some oil for their head. You would do that for anyone who ever comes into your house just to kind of fix your hair. It'd be like saying, wash up here. He kisses them on the cheek. You do that for anyone who comes in your house. It's a kiss of peace. What it means is, my house is your house. Come in. It's a handshake. It's a fist bump. It's a hug. It's a whatever. And most importantly, he would give them water to wash their feet with and a towel. Um, if he had any means, and Simon may have, he would have a servant wash their feet. This is not just a religious custom. And this is the time at church where I have to talk again about poop. Um, and hang with me. So the ancient, in, the, in this part of the world, the, the roads were largely dirt. And when it would rain, it would get muddy. Um, but really the worst part is the same roads that were used by the people were used by the animals. And animals go whenever they want to go. And there's just stuff all over the street all the time. But that made it, and it was made um, worse in other, con, other places because the human sewage would also be used as, the, the streets would be used as the sewers. So people would dump their sewage on the streets. Super gross, I know. So the streets were full of animal and human waste. And so when you walked into someone's house, I don't know why they all wore open-toed sandals. <laughs> uh, that's a question I have when I get to the literal heaven. Well, boots. Um, but, so you come into someone's home with crap on your feet, and the nice thing to do, what everyone would do, is either have a servant wash your feet for you or say you can wash up right there. This was essential to enjoy dinner, right? You're going to smell it if you don't fix it. So Jesus comes into this house, and no one even greets him at the door. He's not sure he's at the right place. He comes in with disgusting feet. His hair's a mess. And he has to find his way to this dining area, which is probably an outdoor patio. Maybe there's a little half wall separating the people that are watching from this conversation that's already gone on. They're already halfway into dinner. I can't overstate how rude that would be. Jesus is supposed to be the invited guest. And he awkwardly sort of takes a place at the table and reclines. They usually would not sit in chairs, but kind of recline. And Jesus knows this is, this is a setup, totally. But he doesn't know what. And before it can happen, the crowd starts to murmur. And there's a commotion in the back of the crowd. And the crowd starts to part down the middle. And this woman, who's an emotional mess, really, comes up to that little half wall, and she's holding a little porcelain jar of something. And she's looking at each of the Pharisees, and then she sees Jesus, and she hikes her robe up, which was scandalous, over the wall and runs to Jesus and falls on her knees right there at his feet. And she's a mess, and she's shaking, and nobody knows what in the world's going on. And then she opens this jar, and it's filled with perfume. And suddenly, we're all sitting in the perfume section at Macy's. <laughs> it's just overwhelming. This isn't any perfume. This is prostitute perfume. And the reason you would have prostitute perfume one reason only, to smell like a prostitute. So that when people smelled it, they could take a conversation wherever they wanted it to go. That's why you had this. And it's very expensive. It's the number one tool for her trade. And she takes it. It already stinks in this, on this patio. 
and dumps it all on his feet and it mixes with the animal and human waste on his feet. And suddenly the stench is overwhelming in this guy's dining room. His house is going to smell like prostitute for months. This is the pastor. And Simon, he leans over to one of his friends. This is a crazy thing going on. And he says, if this Jesus, if he is who he says he was, he would know who this woman is and that she's a sinner. Well, Jesus looks up and he says, Simon, can I tell you a story? I love this part of the story because he's just going to ignore this woman for a while. He's just letting her do her thing. Um, she's let her hair down now and she's weeping and she's using her hair to clean up his feet and she's kissing his dirty feet. And he says, Simon, can I tell you a story? There was a certain money lender who two men owed him money. One owed him 50 bucks, another owed him 5,000. And he woke up in a good mood one day and he went to both men. He, the man who owed 50 bucks, he said, don't worry about it. I forgive your debt, you don't have to pay me back. Then he went to the man who owed him 5,000. He said, you don't worry about it. Uh, I'll pay your debt. You don't have to pay me back. That's the end of the story, Simon. Jesus says, which of those two men do you think loved that moneylender more? The one who was forgiven 50 bucks or the one who was forgiven 5,000? Now Jesus was masterful at asking questions where the obvious answer was the wrong answer. So Simon thinks for a good long while and he says, I suppose the one who was forgiven $5,000 forgives him more. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. You see this woman, Simon? When I came into your house, you didn't give me oil for my head. She's dumped perfume on my feet. When I came in, you gave me no water to wash my feet with. She's washing my feet right now with her tears and her hair. When I came in, you didn't kiss me on the cheek. She's kissing my dirty feet right now, Simon. Do you see this woman? She has sinned a lot. And she's been forgiven of a lot. So she loves a lot. But those of you who've been forgiven of so little, you don't even know how to love. Silence. He looks down at the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. <gasps> they all gasp. That's, that's heresy. That's the sort of thing that's going to get him killed. And then he looks at her and he says, you're saved. Your faith has saved you. He uses the word salvation. Your faith has saved you. Leave. Go on. That's salvation. That's the reaction to holistic salvation. On your knees, gracious, willing to, to give up your old life. That's the perfume in my mind. Two things. Dumping that, she's saying I'm not a prostitute anymore. And dumping it, she's saying this is the most expensive thing I have. You can have it. That's what it looks like to love deeply. That's when we've been forgiven of much we love much. Simon is a religious guy who's been almost perfect except for a few things he's hiding. And so it's hard for him to imagine that he needs to be like that woman. But really they're both the same. Simon has used his religion to justify himself. And actually in Jesus' mind, it's worse because he can't get out of it. He's stuck in it. He's believed his own press. He's, now, he's spinning his own image to himself and he's lost. And in that story, you know, so many of us want to put ourselves in the place of that prostitute. We want to think that's who we would be, and many of us would be. But so many of us are Simon. 
when, when we think we're, we're pretty good. We're not like that, like the sinners. That's a dangerous place to be. Because you can make a, a hard case that the point of the Gospels is to be more like prostitutes than pastors. That there's a lot of stories telling you that because they know what they need. They need saved. Very quickly, just one more thing. Later on in Luke's gospel, a wealthy person will come to Jesus and say, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, do all the Ten Commandments. You know, murder, not adultery, all those. And he says, I've done all those. I'm 10 out of 10. Bam. Nailed him. And he says, well, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. And he walks away sad, that rich man does, because he can't do that. That's when Jesus says, it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like trying to cram a whole camel through a little eye of a needle. And one of the disciples says, well, then who can be saved? That sounds impossible. He says, anything is possible with God, but it's hard. Well, then the next story, Jesus is actually in Jericho, and the richest guy in town is a little tiny Danny DeVito, a little guy named Zacchaeus. <laughs> and he's the worst guy in town. He is Tony Soprano. He's the mob boss of the mob bosses. He's ripped everybody off and he climbs the tree to see Jesus. Jesus looks up and says, get down, Zacchaeus. I'm gonna have lunch at your house today. He goes to his house. They have some conversation we know nothing about and then they come out for a press conference on the front porch and Jesus has his arm around Zacchaeus and he says, this man is a true Israelite. Salvation has come to this man's house today. So the richest guy in town can find the kingdom but he's gotta be desperate for it. Desperate enough to climb a tree. Desperate enough to look ridiculous. Desperate enough to give away all of his money, whether he does or not. So, for us and for our salvation, I would encourage you to leave this week thinking about that, that your salvation is being worked out every day. You're being saved holistically. It's good to say what you believe and it's good to go through a religious rite like baptism to signify that. I hope you've done, I hope all of you have done those things. But there is a second ongoing conversion that happens daily where you're being saved. And when you realize you've been forgiven of much and I hope all of us, when we think about that story, can get to a point where we know for certain we're the prostitute, not the pastor. We're the one who falls. And Jesus then can say to us, your faith has healed you, saved you. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for uh, letting me be here today and uh, for the hospitality here at Forefront. And um, uh, I am uh, honored to be here and, and thankful that we get to spend some time in Brooklyn. This is a pretty great place. And I just pray that as we leave, that this community here could, uh, could work out their own salvation like we've talked about, but it could also be a, a saving influence on this city and uh, that many people would come into this room and to this community, more importantly, and find salvation and find hope. And that uh, you would continue to build this into a community of sort of uh, ragamuffins and nobodies and outcasts um, because uh, in those sorts of communities, God, we see so clearly who you are and that you save. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.